0: I am the Lord sa <laughs> re
1: I am a more virus of by as well as a um, section from a letter of silencing. Sorry about that. Um, try to wrap everything up that we've been talking about. So this is, I want to begin, this is the beginning part of chapter five of the book called Only the Masters Know. And uh, I'll start with this. Sanchi says, every day I've been commenting on the Vars written by Bhagir Das. As I have said previously, Bhagir Das did not write these Vars because he was criticizing anyone. He did not criticize anyone, and he did not have any ill feelings toward anyone. In the same way, we should also not have those feelings. We should also not think that a certain person has so many faults and shortcomings, because that is the work of the Master. Only the Master knows how he has to make his disciples pay off his karmas, and along with it, how he has to purify him and take him back. Saints and Mahatmas, the perfect masters, not only explain the theory to us, but when they give us the gnome initiation, they connect our soul to that place, Sachkhand, from where our soul has come into this world. At the time of initiation, the master sits within us in the form of the Shabbat. And only he knows how he is going to make us pay off our karmas. That is why he gives us experiences and choices accordingly. Only the Master knows what is good for us and what is not good for us. We do not have any idea about our karma, and we do not know the causes of either our comfort or our suffering. Only the Masters know. Our master is the only one who knows what is best for us. That is why he gives us what we need according to our karmas. We are so ignorant of karma that we don't know anything about it. It is like when we put food in our mouth. We do not know to which side of the body it goes. So how can we know anything about our karmas? Only the master knows how we can best pay them off. That is why Masters always tell us that God Almighty does not give pain or happiness to anyone. We get pain and happiness according to our own karmas. Baba Jamal Singh once told Baba Salon Singh, Look here dear one, God Almighty gives us pain and happiness only through human beings. He does not give us pain and happiness because He wants to, pain and happiness come to us through other people only because of our past karmas with them. He also used to say that if God Almighty becomes gracious on us, and if in his pleasure he gives us the kingdom of the three worlds, we should not get puffed up with pride and ego. And if the same God Almighty withdraws his grace and takes the kingdom of the three worlds from us, we should not get upset or find fault with him. When it came in his will and pleasure, he gave us that gift, and when he wanted to withdraw it, he took it back. It belonged to him. It was his thing, and he was free to do anything he wanted with it. Guru Ramdas Ji Maharaj says, If people praise me, it is your glory, and if they criticize me, I will not leave you. He says that if people praise you saying you are a great Mahatma, you are doing a very good satsang, you have a good influence on the people, at that time you should not think that you are doing it. You should always think that it is the glory of the Master because in fact we do not have any good quality in ourselves. The only good quality we have is that we belong to a Master and the Master is within us. If people criticize you, if, people, if they say that you are a sinner and you have all these faults and bad qualities, you should not find fault with the Master. You should always remain in the will of God because if God Almighty wants, he makes people praise you and if he wants, he makes people criticize you. We should always remain in the will of God and whatever comes in his will, we should accept it. Guru says, this is not a small task, it is not easy work to control the mind because mind is not a small thing, it is a very big power. It is very powerful in these three worlds and everyone in the three worlds obeys his orders. You know that when mind ordered the rishis and munis to do something, even they bowed down to his orders. Dear ones, the Masters have given us a very strong remedy with which we can control our mind. And when we do, all the forces of the mind, lust, anger, greed, attachment and egoism, come under our control. And then we do not remain under their control. We are no longer their servants. But, in fact, they become our servants. You might have read the lives of the rishis and munis. The rishis and munis were not bad people, they were very good people because they did so much devotion of the Lord. They performed many austerities and that is not child's play. It is not a small thing to perform austerities. It takes a lot of energy and it is very difficult. I myself have done many different kinds of practices and I know what it takes to suffer hunger and thirst and how difficult it is. So even though the rishis and munis did so much devotion and they performed so many austerities and did so many practices, still some of them were conquered by lust or anger and the others by egoism. They thought There is no one like me, and all these things are happening only because of me. There was once a king named Bhaj, who was a great scholar of Sanskrit, and in his court he had many learned scholars. Once it so happened that a question came into the mind of King Baj and he wanted to know its answer. The question was, which sin is it which is like a swamp? so that if a person gets into that sin, he cannot come out. Sorry, I just noticed a mistake while I was reading from this. I'm supposed to be proofreading of these, and I thought I had, but I overlooked something. And he wanted to know its answer. The question was, which sin is it which is like a swamp? so that if a person gets into that sin, he cannot come out. He asked his people about that swamp-like sin, but nobody was able to reply. There was one very learned person in his court who was kind of the chief of all the others. When he was asked, he was also confused. He tried his best to satisfy the king, but he was not able to convince him with his answer. So the king told him, I want this answered to my satisfaction as soon as possible. Otherwise, you will be punished severely. So that chief became very worried. When he went outside, he saw a shepherd who noticed his worried demeanor and asked him what the matter was. The scholar replied, I'm worried because my king has asked me this question. Which sin is it which is like a swamp? And I don't know the answer. I have tried my best, but the king is not convinced, and if I don't satisfy him, he's going to punish me or kill me or do whatever he wants to me. That's what I'm worried about. The shepherd said, well, that's a very simple question, and I know the answer. So the chief said, well, why don't you tell me? That way I could get release. He said, I can give you the answer, but you know that if you want someone to do something for you, you have to pay him. So if you want to gain knowledge from me, it is a question of knowledge. If you gain knowledge from me, you have to become my disciple. And if you become my disciple, you will have to do what I tell you to do. So that chief said, all right, I'm ready to become your disciple. He belonged to a very high caste, and the shepherd was a low caste person, but he really wanted the answer, so he agreed. But the shepherd said, well, no, it's not that easy. In order to become my disciple, you will have to drink sheep's milk, because I raise sheep. That's what I have, and you will have to drink it. The sheep replied, You know, I belong to a very high caste, and we don't even like to touch sheep. What to speak of drinking their milk is very bad. It will spoil and ruin my religion. How can I possibly drink it? So the shepherd replied, All right, it's up to you. If you don't want to become my disciple, if you don't want to get the answer to your question, don't drink the milk. The chief realized that he had made a mistake and he thought, well, maybe after drinking the milk I'll do some repentance. So he said, all right, I'll drink the milk. But the shepherd said, well, that was my condition then. <laughs> now that time has passed, so that condition is no longer valid. Now if you want to become my disciple and get the answer to your question, You will have to drink contaminated sheep's milk from which both I and my dog will drink before you. Not only that, you will have to drink it from a human skull." Now that she said, well, that's too much. How is it possible for me to drink milk contaminated by both you and your dog and out of a human skull? The shepherds say, well, it's the condition. If you want the answer to your question, you can have it. So the chief thought, well, so I'm going to repent anyway. I'll do it for everything. So he drank that milk, and then he asked for the answer to that question. The shepherd did not have any long explanations to give him. He said, well, dear one, you did not understand. The answer to your question was right with you. It's very simple. Greed is that sin. Greed is that swamp. If a person gets stuck in it, he cannot get out. Because you were greedy for the answer, you agreed to whatever conditions I put in front of you, even though they flew in the face of your religious beliefs. But you didn't care, because all you wanted was the answer. Greed is the only thing which, if you get into it, you can never come out. The biggest reasons why people criticize others greed and egoism. Egoism causes us to criticize and beyond that we have greed because our interest is not being fulfilled. We become jealous of the other person and from that jealousy criticism is born. But the thoughts of those who do the meditation of Nam and go within are exactly opposite from the thoughts of the critics. They have conquered egoism, and they never allow jealousy to be born. Before jealousy is created, they have easily conquered it. There is a story told of Prophet Muhammad, that once there was a person who used to envy the Prophet very much because he could not understand why so many people were following him. He was always jealous of him. Once it so happened that Prophet Muhammad, accompanied by one of his sevadars, went to a marketplace and that same person who envied him was there. As soon as he saw the Prophet, he started calling names at him and shouting nonsense against him, but Prophet Muhammad just kept quiet. He did not respond to the names of the shouting. The sevadar who was accompanying the Prophet was surprised because he was not responding in any way. He was just quietly listening to what the other person had to say. The Sevadar said, why don't you answer him? You know what he's saying is not true. But Prophet Muhammad kept quiet. You know that even a person who shouts or calls names at others has a certain limit. So when that limit came, that person quieted down and said nothing further. Then Prophet Muhammad told his Sevadar, dear one, Now you can go and ask him if he needs anything, and if there is anything I can do for him. I will be very happy to serve him." That sevadar was very surprised because all the Prophet had gotten from the critic was abuse. But instead of abusing him back or trying to punish him, the Prophet was offering him Seva. He was astonished because he did not realize how humble the Beloveds of God are. Sheikh Farid also says those who slap you with their arms never beat them with your fists. Those who come to your home always kiss their feet. Often such things happen in the lives of the perfect Mahatmas. In the time of Baba Salon Singh people belonging to a particular sect set up a place right in front of the Dara and did everything they could against him. But Baba Sauron Singh did not reply to their criticisms or abuses. Instead, he would invite them to have food in the langar, and he used to say, Dear ones, since you work so hard, you might be having some difficulty getting food or other things. Here we have the langar of the Master, and you are welcome to eat here whenever you want. Only the Mahatmas who have done meditation, the perfect Mahatmas, have this kind of heart. Only they are the ones who love the critics, who can love the critics. You know the condition of the rest of us, how we are always ready to answer criticism, even when it is true. Sometimes we are ten times more powerful than our critics. Oops. Okay. I wanted to read a section from a letter of Baba Singh about karma, which has always struck me as extremely helpful in understanding how a lot of things work. says there are two ways of looking at this creation, one, from the top looking down, the creator's point of view, two, from the bottom looking up, man's point of view. From the top it looks as though the creator is all in all, he is the only doer, and the individual seems like a puppet tossed right and left by the wire puller. There seems to be no free will in the individual and therefore no responsibility on his shoulder. It is his play. There is no why or wherefore. All the saints when they look from the top describe the creation as his manifestation. They see him working everywhere. Looking from below or the individual viewpoint we come across variety as opposed to oneness. Everybody appears to be working with a will and is influenced by and is influencing others with whom he comes in contact. The individual thinks he is the doer and thereby becomes responsible for his actions and their consequences. All the actions are recorded in his mind and memory and cause likes and dislikes which keep him pinned down to the material, astral, or mental spheres according to his actions in an earlier life in the cycle of transmigration. The individual in these regions cannot help doing actions and having done them cannot escape their influences. The individual acts as the doer and therefore bears the consequences of his actions. As stated above, the observations differ on account of the difference in the angle of vision. Both are right. One, the individual clothed in coarse material form sees only the external material forms. His sight does not go deeper than that if he were to 2 if you were to rise up to sans del camo the same individual would see the mind actuating all forms the form would be the only, would be only secondary mind would be the prime mover in all 3 the same individual from daswandwar will see the spirit current working everywhere and will see how the mind gets power from the spirit 4 from such kind, the whole creation looks like bubbles, forming and disappearing in the spiritual ocean. An individual is endowed with intelligence and does every action knowingly. It is therefore incumbent on him to find a way of escape from this entanglement. To raise his spirit, he must struggle against the mind, for he lives by struggle. And where there is a will there is a way. He cannot say that this is no part of his duty." Now, I would like to point out first of all, the Singh's comment as stated above, the observations differ on account of the difference in the angle of vision. Both are right and there is where we get right to the essence of the paradox which is, after all, uh, a situation where two things that are opposite in meaning are, in fact, both true. And here we have two views of the universe which any one of us would say are totally and absolutely incompatible, and yet the Master says, no, both are right. It depends on how you're looking. There is a um, a saying... An observation that is handed down in the esoteric Jewish tradition that I learned from a rabbi who visited Sanpani school one day many years ago uh, in the Hasidic tradition. And he explained something that had always puzzled me. He spoke about the story in the Bible about Moses who wanted to see God, and God said, well you can see me but you can't see me face to face. Even though other parts of the Bible said Moses did see him face to face, but that's okay. For the purposes of this story, we are, God tells him that he cannot see him face to face, but he can see his backside. I'll show you my back. So Moses is up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and it says in the book of Exodus that uh, God did indeed appear to Moses and showed him his back. And what the rabbi explained to me is that the esoteric Kabbalistic Jewish understanding of that story is that if you look at somebody's back, if they position themselves correctly in front of you, you look over their shoulder and you see what they see. You see from their perspective. So that what God was doing when he had Moses look at his back, was looking at the world the way that he saw it, and he showed Moses, in other words, in other words, the uh, the vision from Satchkan, the whole creation, looking like bubbles forming and disappearing in the spiritual ocean. Now, I would like to point out two things here. One is that it is vitally important for us. One of the things that the path is all about, and that. Um, we need to do if we are going to uh, recognize, understand, receive its fullness is to adopt, as God showed Moses, to adopt the point of view of God insofar as we can. That is, the more detached we are from uh, the hurly burly and whatever of daily life, um, the easier it is for to, to remember the truth of the matter, the reality of the universe. At the same time, however, because both are right, it is also vitally important for the master to have our point of view. And this is what happens when the divine invasion occurs, when the god of love comes down into the lower worlds and takes on people and uh, gives them the benefit Of his love and his darshan and his angle of vision, he is able to do that because he can see from their angle of vision what they are going through. Because both are right. We really do experience the world in the way that we experience it as long as we experience it. And as long as we are constituted the way we are and the world is constituted the way it is, we cannot get around that. We do experience it. And the Master knows that. And that's why if you read many of the bhajans, uh, not all they vary in point of view, but many of them are written from the point of view of the disciples stuck in the muck of mind, matter, maya, greed, all that stuff. And the Master is writing because out of his enormous compassion and his, his big, big heart as Sanchi said, I think yesterday in the reading, um, what a big heart he has because he's for the whole universe. He sees very clearly what we are going through and he does not judge us or condemn us or blame us for mistakes we make. It's really important to be aware of that. I've had so many experiences with the masters of this sort. I'll just tell you one. In South America in 1980, um, we got there, and uh, we were in the master's house, and uh, people were telling us where we were going to be put and like that. And I was assigned a room with somebody else who had just arrived from America. And that person was someone with whom I had a very hard time. And uh, really there was a personal problem between him and me that was enormous. And we both felt it wasn't just me. And I, um, I couldn't deal with it. You know, the idea that here for the next, I forget, it was a fairly long stay, I was going to be stuck in the room with somebody that I really disliked intensely uh, just ruined the whole thing for me. And I was very tired. We had just flown from Africa by way of Rio de Janeiro. And I was very tired. And I, I just went, I lost it. I went over to one corner of the room and I started crying. I turned my, I mean, I turned my, my face to the wall. I didn't want anyone to see me. But I didn't know what to do. I was just totally out of it, at a loss. And the master came over and he put his arm around my shoulder and he said, why are you crying? And I told him. And he said, oh, well, we could fix that. Uh, we don't have to stay in that room. We'll, we'll find another room for you. And he did. And that was all. Now, you could think there I was violating all command, every commandment in the book, practically. I mean, what was it? It's not my affair to be upset over other people and to dislike them and to um, You know be so upset by them that um, I don't want to stay in the same room with them. I mean What happened to loving everybody including the, your enemies and you know all that stuff? And, yet, and the master knew that. He knew very well that I was not exactly functioning on a very high level at that point. But he didn't care. I mean he probably would have liked me to have done better But he saw it totally from my point of view and he sympathized totally with me And he gave me something in the short run that enabled me to avoid that And I I have tried to remember that. I have often forgotten But I've tried to remember that in connection with other people. If the master can be that understanding and forgiving with me Surely I can be the same with others. You know, it's like Okay, so somebody offends me. I don't know if I told this story yesterday or not, but uh, there's a story told that Moses once um, um, entertained a guy who did not thank God before eating. And Moses was very annoyed at him and um, felt it in his heart and God spoke to him in his heart. Moses, I have put up with that man all his life. Can't you put up with him for one night? And it's it's like, you know, talk about God's point of view. I mean, he created all these people, including us. So it's like we can can deal with it. Anyway, um, That was an important thing for me, a very small thing. I mean, God knows I've been in despair over bigger things than that. But it was still, at the moment, it was huge. And really, the way things are when we can't deal with them, they're huge. You know, it doesn't do any good for somebody to say, oh, this is nothing, you can rise above this. It's not nothing, and we can't necessarily rise above it because we're stuck in it. But, you know, the Master knows all that. And he loves us. As Sanchi says in many of the bhajans, you know, you are the forgiver. So forgive me. You know, that's what it amounts to. Do. Who's going to, how will you be the forgiver if you don't forgive me? You know, that question is there, always. All right, I want to conclude today by reading what in my opinion is the key chapter of the book. I won't read the whole thing and I have read this a few times in other places and some of you may well have heard it. It's the chapter to which the title of the book has been taken, namely The Rescue. And I find this quite extraordinary um, in every way and it, for its implications as well as for the specifics of the story. Sorry. A brief, this is not the beginning of the chapter, but it's fairly close to the beginning. A brief hymn regarding King Janak is presented to you. King Janak was a very reputable king in India. And along with his being a king and doing his work as a king, he was also a great meditator, a perfect saint. Even great rishis like the sons of Vedvyas had gone to him and had taken him as their master. He attended to all his responsibilities as a king, but at the same time he also did his devotion. Kabir says, just as a camel cannot climb a castle, and a ball cannot stay on a camel's back, that one can do the devotion of God while being a king, how can it be believed? But the fact is that King Janak did pull that off and uh, is often cited in various Indian literature as the idea of the perfect householder, the the person who carried through all of his outer responsibilities while at the same time um, carrying through his inner ones. And uh, he's referred to many times in the writings of the masters. Master Kripal used to talk about him a lot. His guru is Ashtavatra, a rishi who had eight humps on his body, who was able to give him an experience where nobody else could. And um, his disciples included Sukhdev, the son of Vedvyas, mm-hmm. and other people too. Anyway, Sanchi says, earlier I have told how King Janak did his meditation. Many masters have said a lot about the way he became perfect in his meditation. At his end time, when he left this world, the Lord of Judgment himself came down to take him as religion or Dharma personified. And because the Lord of Judgment wasn't taking King Janak as a punishment, he wasn't taking him off the way the Lord of Judgment might take other people, he was escorting him as a as a, like a like guard of honor, sent by God. And as he was being taken by the Lord of Judgment to the higher plains, on the way he heard screams and cries. So King Janak asked the Lord of Judgment, what's all the screaming and crying that's going on? The Lord of Judgment replied, those are the screams and cries of those souls who, when given the human birth, did not utilize it for the purpose for which it was given to them. They did all kinds of bad deeds. Now they are being punished in the hells. They are screaming and crying because they are getting punishment from the angels of death. Now you know that those who do the devotion of Nam become very compassionate and have a lot of mercy and grace for others. Whenever they hear the cries or screams of the people, their hearts melt. So King Janak's heart melted and he felt very compassionate towards them. He said, Why don't you release them all from the punishment of hell? The Lord of Judgment replied, I am a child of the indestructible being, Almighty God, and I am under orders only to do judgment. It is not in my capacity to release them. I have to give them punishment for the bad deeds they have done. I cannot release them on my own. So then King Janak offered, well, whatever you want me to pay for them, I am ready to pay. But you should release them, because I don't want them to go through all the punishment. So King Janak offered his meditations. He placed on one side of the balance a little bit of the naan that he had meditated on, and on the other side of the balance he placed all the souls who were in hell. But still, the side of the balance where the nam was placed was heavier. So it is said that just by giving a little bit of the fruit of the meditation of King Janak, he was able to release all the souls from hell. Those who do the devotion of nam get so much power and so much grace that even if just one person does the meditation of nam he can release millions of screaming and suffering souls from hell. Master Kripal used to say, what a man has done, a man can do. It is not that only King Janak could do the meditation and we cannot do it. He used to say that we have also been given the same nam, we have been connected with the same nam, and we also can do the meditation of nam just as King Janak did. Kabir Sahib also said, If we can maintain the devotion all our life which we had for the Master on the day we met him, if we go on doing our devotion like that, then what is the question of getting our own liberation? We can liberate a million others as well. Because you know that when we go to the Master on the first day, we have a lot of devotion and faith in him. So if, after receiving initiation, we can maintain that faith and devotion and go on doing the meditation as instructed by the Master, we can not only liberate our own selves, we can also become a means of the liberation of millions of other suffering souls. And then Satchi goes on, Bhagavad Gita um, Sanchi has told the story before the hymn in which the story is told has been sung. So then the hymn is sung and Sanchi makes a few more comments on it, which are, I'll, I'll read them too because they're very interesting also. Uh, the hymn of Bhai Gurdas, King Janak was the foremost devotee. He was a guramukh who remained sad even though he had so much wealth. Bhai says that the foremost devotee was King Janak even though God Almighty gave him a lot of Maya worldly wealth still it did not make him happy because he knew that he had to go back to his real home King Janak set off for the divine worlds on his way he saw the angels and spirits living in happiness when he went to Jampuri the plain of the Lord of Judgment he heard the screaming voices of the resident souls of hell. Now he says that when the Lord of Judgment came along with other gods and goddesses to take him, and he was being taken back to the real home along with gods and goddesses, on his way he heard the cries and screams coming from hell. In order to rescue them from those sufferings, he went to hell, he stayed there. King Janak told the Lord of Judgment to release all of them. The Lord of Judgment begged and said, I am a servant of the indestructible Lord. He told the Lord of Judgment, Why don't you release them? Why are you giving them so much pain? So the Lord of Judgment replied, I am just a servant, a Savadar of that indestructible being, and I cannot do anything else. King Janak placed his nam on the scale and paid off all the sins. The sins were too much for them but even a small amount of his naam was more than was needed as the nam of the Guramukk is beyond any measure. Bhai Gurdas says that King Janak told the lord of judgment I am giving you a little bit of nam, and you can weigh it like you weigh ornaments so it is said that when he weighed that little bit of nam, it was still heavier than the numerous sins of the souls who were crying. Oh, all the souls and beings were liberated from hell and the noose of yama was cut from their necks. The liberation and the practice to achieve it are slaves of the one who meditates on nam. There is so much power in the nam of the Guru that it broke all the chains with which the Lord of Judgment had tied up all the souls in hell. They were all broken by the power of the Nam of the Guru So that is why Bhai Gurdas says that liberation lies only in the meditation of the Nam." And of course the question arises, you know, well if King Janak did that, why don't all the masters do it? And in my opinion, uh, he, is, he is indicating that very specifically here, that they do do it. That's exactly what the Masters do, among other things. In other words, the liberation from hell is like a continuous undermining of the power of judgment by the power of love. This is uh, one of the, the ebbs and flows, the gives and takes that's going on in the inner structure of the universe. Uh, yesterday I mentioned in the how in the kabbalistic understanding the 10 sefirot that the um the sephirat, the Sefirah of love is uh, in opposition to the sephirah of judgment and how when uh, hesed and uh, din or gevurah and how when gevurah is separated out it has to judge it cannot do anything but judge at the same time The love has to love, cannot do anything but love. And so they become like the two poles of the created universe, the positive and the negative. And um, one is continuously working, but so is the other. And what we see here in this world is like the interplay of those two forces. And it does appear, from our perspective in this world, that the power of judgment is stronger because the world is set up according to that power. But, you know, the essence of Maya is that it's not the way it seems. And uh, the inner structure of the universe is not like that. And yeah, the hells exist and people go there as part of the way karma works in the three worlds. And suffering happens everywhere and like that. But the love that is the core of the universe, the love that is the reality of the upper universe, flows in and continually undermines and drowns out the decrees of the Lord of Judgment. And that's what that story indicates. And, if, you know, there's a lot of stories like that uh, in which masters um, subvert the uh, structure of the lower worlds. Um, this is why the Gnostics, the early Christians who had views like this, considered that it really was a divine invasion. And the author Philip K. Dick, a science fiction author, personal favorite of mine, uh, one of his books was called The Divine Invasion because it was precisely about this. Criticism of blame and praise, of reward and punishment, of duality that is set up which seems so logical to us and in a way so fair and right. But, if you know, the whole thing is absolutely, it works, but if we subtract love from it, it becomes unworkable. And there is one of my favorite books, uh, although I have many, I have to admit, um, but one of my favorite theological treatises is called Tick Tock of Oz by uh, L. Frank Baum, who also wrote The Famous Wizard of Oz. And in that book there is a section where the travelers are thrown into a tube that goes to the other side of the world, and they come out in the domains of someone who is known as Tita Tihuchu, the great Jinjin, also known as the private citizen, because he rules over a country in which every single person there is a king or queen except him. He's the only private citizen, and he runs the country. Uh, Mm. Anyway, Tita Dehuchu, the great Jinjin, is known throughout the world, the world of Oz and like that, as someone who has no love whatsoever, but who is absolutely fair. He's not evil. He's not mean. He is absolutely just and fair. But there is no mercy in his makeup. When the travelers realize where they are, uh, Tiktok, the machine man, who is sort of their spokesman, uh, asks him some questions and he eventually realizes who it is he's talking to. And he said, so, am I to understand that you are Tida Di And the guy says, yup. Yeah. The great Jinjin, Jin? And he says, yes. And at that point, all the members of the party who know about him scream in anguish and faint because they are so afraid that they are going to be uh, judged without any love. I mean, at that point the consciousness of their sin comes uh, comes upon them and they realize that they need grace, they need love. And that is the problem whenever we deal with something and we say, well, you know, it's only fair to, to do this. Sometimes that's right. I mean, sometimes fairness really does involve a measure of mercy and uh, you know, of consideration for everyone involved. But it's it's also a, um, you know, it's not necessarily the way that the higher point of view would look at it. That's the thing of it, you see, is that the way the structure, you know, it's like in the in the bhajan we sang at the beginning, kapal yahi sandesha where the master talks about that the walls of sand do not last, the structure of the universe, and you know, even from a scientific point of view, um, it is so obvious that the inner structure of the universe is so different from what, in a way, it appears to from our point of view. You know, and if we extend that dimension further, you might say, um, we get into the the Kabbalistic. Santma, Sufi, Gnostic, esoteric point of view in which um, really what we see outside, what we see in front of us, what what our point of view encompasses is, um, you know, is so much on the circumference that it leaves off the center. What Master was saying, Master Kripal was saying yesterday in the talk we read that we are, you know, we have never known life at the center of our being, we are playing it on the circumference only. And then he says, the thing is they're not different. Life at the center of the being is not different from the circumference, but it's just that you've got to have both. If we experience, if we can experience from the circumference, from the center, then we can see exactly what the circumference really is, that it is the outer surface of something much more complex. If we think that the circumference is all there is, then we are in total ignorance as to what's really going on. And that, that's really what um, all these stories point to. The famous story, which um, I'm sure you've all heard many times, but I'll say it one more time because it's um, up relevant to what we read about the rescue, uh, which uh, Baba Sawin Singh used to tell, and Master Kripal used to tell, and Sanchi also has told it, about the moneylender who went to a village in India, foreclosed on a farmer, causing enormous unhappiness and dismay to that farmer, and an uh, in, in enormous anger and resentment from all the other farmers, who correctly understood that he would do exactly the same to them if he could. And uh, he had gotten all the farmer's stuff and he wanted to go back to town, but he needed somebody to help him carry the stuff. And uh, But nobody would uh, volunteer to do that, even though he was willing to pay them, because they all hated him. And uh, finally, a master who lived in that town volunteered to do it. He said, I'll carry your stuff for you, or carry it on my head. If you have ever been in India and seen people, I have seen people in railroad stations put enormous piles of suitcases, five or six suitcases at a time, on their heads, and and have them balance there perfectly and walk off. It's it's not at all uncommon to see that. And um, he said, "I will carry your stuff on my head." Uh, for one of two conditions. Either you tell me a story, and I will nod and go yes, yes, or you listen to me tell you a story, and you nod and go yes, yes. So the moneylender thought, well, this is a good deal. Okay, I'll, um, I'll go with that. And he said, you can tell me, you can talk to me. As Mark Twain says, it's very restful to be with some people because they are perfectly willing to do all the talking and you don't have to do a thing, you know. So the moneylender was thinking like that. Well, the Master uh, talked to him the whole time. He told him many stories, about uh, all of which pointed out a couple of facts to him. One, that he had no good deeds in his karma at all, not one in this lifetime. He said to him very directly, you have no good deeds in, in your karma, no good karma, nothing to your credit at all. Everything you have done, in this life is bad. Your whole life has been spent making other people miserable. Um, and you're going to die soon. So when you die, you will go before the Lord of Judgment, and He will look in your book, and He will see that you don't have any good deeds. And He will um, ask you, uh, accept that you spent this time with me, approximately an hour. And he will say to you, uh, you won't have anything except this time you spent with the Master. Your reward will be, do you want the reward now or later? And he said, you tell him you want it now and don't forget, and he left him. And sure enough, a few days later, the guy died and he went um, before the Lord of Judgment. And the Lord of Judgment looked at his book and he said, well, According to this, you don't have one good deed your whole life, except that you spent an hour with a master. He said, your reward for that is two minutes in his company. Do you want that now or later? You can have it now before you go to hell, or you can take a break thousands of years from now and have it later. And the guy said, remember what the master told him, and he said, "Um, I want it now. So uh, he sent him off with a couple of angels of death and he said um, you, uh, they'll go with you and they'll take you where they're going to go and then they will take you back again and take you to hell. So the moneylender said okay. So they got up to the plane where the master was and on the inner planes, you know on the physical plane he had been a very simple guy who lived in a village and who carried luggage for people if they wanted him to, but on the inner planes he was a king and he was uh, holding satsang for thousands of souls. And they got to the edge of where he was, and the angels of death said to him, well, you go on here, we can't go any further, because this is beyond our sphere. But you go on in there, and you go up to him, and make your presence known, and then you have two minutes, and then you come back to us, and we'll take you to hell. So the guy did that, Then he worked his way through, he got up to where the master was. And the master looked at him and said, well, you have come. He said, yes, master, I have come, but I can't stay long. I'm only going to be here a couple of minutes. They're waiting for me. They will signal me and I'll have to go to hell. And the master said, well, who cares what they do? He said, they can't come in here. You're here now. Sit down, enjoy yourself. Forget about it. And the guy was saved. Now, I would like to point out um, this story has always been one of my favorites, partly because I cannot help but identifying with that poor moneylender who had never done any good deeds in his life. Uh, if you think about how the master related to somebody that any of us would think was a slime ball, okay, a total nothing, somebody who isn't even worthwhile looking at, you know, a, a moneylender who has no never once thought about the human suffering he was causing by following his activities and foreclosing and like that. Um, And yet the Master's point of view was this is a human soul, a spark of God, a drop of the ocean of love that has forgotten who it is and he needs help to get back. And that is the way the masters relate to the slower world. That is the way they relate to each one of us. They do not care, you know, how bad we are. And if we start thinking, and I've known satsanghis who have gone into this, you know, they've gone into terrible paroxysms of despair about their awful karma and how they must have been Hitler in their past life and stuff like that. Believe me. No one is going to be worse than the person who has not one good deed, to his credit. And yet the Master came to save him. And so he comes to save us. You know, he is any, any angle he can grab. You know, any, any loose end sticking out that he can unravel the whole thing with, he will grab. You all know that many of the stories of the Master appearing to people who had just met him once, to people who, who had never met him but only knew about about him through um, uh, because they were connected via relatives okay when we' if we're related to somebody who is in love with the master who loves the master and they also love us and we love them then our love for them goes right past them to the master and is counted as love for the Master. That's the way it works. The same is true if we're good friends. There's so many stories like that. Dr. John Lovelace used to tell the story of a guy that, because he was an osteopathic physician, and the guy that he um, worked on who was dying, and the guy was very, very sick and he was dying, and, and as he was working on him, the guy said to him, who's that person that's in the room with you, standing behind you? And Dr. Lovelace told me, he said, well, what does he look like? And he said, well, he's, he's an old man, he's an Indian man, he's got a turban and a long white beard. And um, Dr. Lovelace said, well, his name is Paul, which was the nickname, the Paul Singh's nickname was a boy. And he said, you can, um, he answers to the name of Paul. So the guy said, okay, and he went back, and Dr. Lovelace continued to take care of him. And then, some hours later, he sat straight up. He said, hello, Paul, how are you? Fell back and died. (laughs) Now, obviously, the only connection that the Master had with him was via Dr. Lovelace. And, you know... That is why I think uh, in many of our cases, um, the work we do in the world, the way we connect with people, very uh, unlikely people sometimes, um, anyone with whom we come in contact, whom we can love and who uh, love us back, that love will go straight to the master. If we are centered in the master, it will. If we are, you know, body practitioners, we work on people's health. We are anyone that we deal with in the way that Dr. Lovelace dealt with that guy. Um, this is the way master can work in this way. You know, educating uh, the Sun One of the things about the Bani school is that. You know, nowadays, it was started to educate Satsangi children, and it was the overwhelming, the percentage was overwhelming in the early days. Uh, nowadays, it's about 20% or less uh, satsani kids because of the demographics of the area. But the people still come there and learn about the Master and come under his influence and under his protection. Because don't think that he doesn't protect anyone who even... Asks for it even the slightest little bit because he is interested, and the reason he is interested is because the God of love, who is behind the whole universe, is interested in saving everyone that he can, including us people, so we should never despair, you know. There's a story, I'll conclude with this. This is the story that I was trying to think of earlier. It jumped out of my mind. And I don't even know if it's relevant anymore, but... Um. Master Kripal used to tell this story about a guy who was a Muslim Fakir, and he was a very holy man, a Sufi, and he went to the wilderness, and God loved him, and so he provided for him, miraculously, a pomegranate tree, that produced one pomegranate a day and a spring of water that provided him with water and uh, so every day he he stayed there he did his meditations he ate the pomegranate he drank the water and master says so he passed his days and then the time came and he died and went up to heaven and the lord of judgment said all right you are forgiven as a matter of grace only and the guy got indignant See, grace only? I've had a good life. What is this? I deserve... I mean, look at all the meditation I've done, and this and that. And the Lord of Judgment said, yes, you did all that meditation, but look at the uh, pomegranate tree that was produced for you and the spring of water, which you took every day. That was in payment for everything that you did. Now let's see what else you did. Let's see, you trampled on so many insects at so many times, You will have to be trampled on accordingly and so forth. So the karma, and the guy said, oh, okay, okay, I'll accept the grace. I'm happy to be forgiven by grace only. So this is the way, I mean, the karmic web is very, very difficult to disentangle, and none of us can do it. We are dependent on grace. That, by the way, is another major theme of the new book, is the overwhelming necessity of grace uh, in order to get through human life. But the thing is that the necessity is there, but the fact is also there. We need the grace, but the grace is there. And we have it and we are it is available to us. All right. People, it's been very, very sweet being with you all this weekend. Um I love these weekends up here. I treasure them in my heart. And I know you all do too. So I appreciate it. I've gotten a lot of love from everybody and uh, picked up a lot of wisdom listening to everyone talk, and I appreciate it very much. May God bless us all.
0: Thank you. Well, uh, we, we have something for you. Really? Yeah. Darren. Now, Darren, uh, Darren is the artist of that uh, picture. Oh,
1: wow. Oh. And well, we. Would
0: you like to give me one? Wow. Yeah, so that's... Uh...
1: Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: now you have it also that's not framed so you can take it yeah he's
1: got so you can the smaller ones or a larger one like that, that size that's not framed but you can put in your suitcase i think that's i can probably get this in yeah. my suitcase but it okay. might be damaged on the way back Well we not? can figure that out later okay but we wanted to present back to you now. yeah, so well, thank you very, very much. That's thank you very much for being here. It's always a pleasure. Yes. Great. The pleasure is mine, I assure you. Could we see the picture? Huh? Could
0: we see the picture? Oh, well,
1: that sure. one there. Oh, it's the same
0: one? Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Where is it? It's right it's here. on the wall over right there. Oh, on the wall over oh, Yeah. 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 That one.
0: So there, there are a few announcements. Uh, one is uh, there is a tip, uh, tip bowl for the staff here in the lunchroom if you're so inclined to tip
1: them. Um, blankets and cushions to the front. Blankets and cushions to the front up here, mm-hmm. and Bajan and books as well.